Welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Norris, senior pastor here at Perimeter Church. And uh, this podcast allows us and other members of our teaching team uh, to dig deeper into God's Word, discussing major takeaways from the series and how we can apply it to our everyday lives. Our heart behind this podcast is to Uh, to give greater context to the sermon series we're walking through as a church and help you, the listener, apply it to your everyday life and to you as a disciple and follower of Christ. And so we've been in this series on the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings as we teach through this book in part one this year. Part two will be in 2021 next fall. And and, uh, as we make our way through this book, we want to pause along the way. We want to look back and uh, be able to uh, to dive in a little bit more, to dig deeper, like we like we talk about, to see what was it that we could have said in sermons, uh, but that we didn't really have time to hit on. Uh, time didn't allow to to get to those specific things, but they're deeply and significantly uh, important things that we want to touch on and hit on, and so. Uh, I think where we'll start this morning, I'm joined again as I am each time so far in this series with Caleb Click and with Bob Cargo, both on our teaching team here uh, at the church. And guys, I think where we want to start this morning is thinking through uh, pulling back out at a 50,000 foot view and uh, kind of talking through again, where is this whole book headed? What is the whole big picture of Exodus uh, as we as we get into, you know, teaching through specific passages, sometimes it, we can get lost in it of what's the big picture? What is it that we're, um, that we're engaged with as God is leading us through this story uh, to the bigger picture, even of the Bible and where Exodus fits in? So uh, let me throw that out there. I'll certainly comment along the way, but I'd love for one of you guys to start us as you think about an Exodus overview. Uh, what, what's God up to? What's the book of Exodus about? I guess I can start us. Um, I, mean, I think if you look at the book of Exodus, you know, you've got uh, God is revealing himself as, I think we've said this before, as, as a redeemer to his people. Like they, they know him as sovereign, they know him as king, but now they're, they're knowing this is a God who saves and redeems his people from the, the condemnation of, of death uh, that they have as a result of sin. And you also have a God who, who makes it really, really clear that he intends to dwell with his people. Uh, he, he doesn't just uh, want to have a people for himself and then be apart from them, but rather he wants to bring them back to something that resembles what they had in the garden, which is to dwell with God in communion and fellowship with him. Um, and uh, you see his heart, you see his care for his people in the midst of their uh, oppression and uh, slavery that he they are groaning and he he knows their pain, um, but you also see a God who is uh, I, I think of the line of a I, th- I think this is the right line from C.S. Lewis where he talks about God as being the cosmic interferer. This is this is a God who doesn't follow our plans. He doesn't come at our invitation. He just shows up and he begins to disrupt things for our good, and that's exactly what God does here in the Book of Exodus. He shows up and he disrupts everything in Egypt and the lives of Israel, and it's for their good. Um, that they would know the God who could redeem. Yeah. Any, any, as we've talked about in some previous episodes, but for the sake of recapping of, because it's so important to keep bringing this up, when he does show up, when he does uh, interfere, right, as Lewis said, um, it's not always in the ways that we would have drawn up. It's not in the ways that we would have said, hey, if you're going to interfere with my life, here's how I'd like for you to do that. Right, um, and so there's this uh, there's this work of God that is taking place among His people in the lives of His people through His people, 
that is, um, it's according to God's design, according to his timing, according to his sovereign rule and reign um, as the God of the universe. Uh, there's, there's even, Bob, I'd love for you to kind of talk about the, uh, there's a way to look at the book of Exodus um, as kind of an even split. Well, I, I shouldn't say even split, but right, there's a first part and a second part, and there's there's some really interesting delineation between those two parts that are, are good to remember. So talk to us about that. Okay. Um, yeah, we're going to get more deeply into this when we pick back up on Exodus next year. We're taking, you know, as you know, part of the book this year. If you're a listener, maybe you don't know that. We're taking part of the book this year. Another part we'll pick back up next year. And uh, the best way probably to describe this is if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, and when the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, the first three books of the Bible are basically about what we call the indicatives of the gospel, what God has done, is doing, will do. It's his actions. And then the last three chapters are what we call the imperatives of the gospel. That is how we're to live our lives based upon being saved. And in some ways, we can say Exodus has that kind of uh, approach too. There's first the work of God in saving Israel and saving his people, really saving us. Uh, And then based upon his act of grace in saving them, he then turned to giving them commands about how they're to live. And that's based upon his saving work. And that's just like we see in Ephesians, as we see it in Colossians, we see it in so many of the epistles uh, that in one way or another basically says, okay, here's how God wants you to live. But it's based upon the fact that he has saved you by grace. And that's what we see in the book of Exodus too. Yeah, that's great, Bob. And and one of the ways that I think maybe perhaps we had talked about it in a previous episode, I know that in, in meetings that, uh, that we've had as a teaching team, we've certainly used this terminology, but one way to to think about the book of Exodus uh, when you're looking at it from a big uh, 50,000 foot overview is to think about the first 15 chapters as uh, passive recipients, that, that God's people, the Israelites, are passive recipients, as Bob was explaining there uh, about even the first, uh, the indicatives of the first part of the book of Ephesians, what's true, what's happening. God is the initiator. He's the one pursuing, uh, as Caleb saying, as you were saying about uh, the cosmic interfere, there's this God who shows up, begins to do these significant works in the lives of his people to lead them, to rescue them, to bring them uh, out of slavery. But then you get into chapter 16 and you're moving more into a part of the book where things are shifting towards active obedience, where uh, God's people have been have been passive recipients up until this point. Now God is calling them to something. Uh, he's calling them to uh, to the law and and the implications of the law, and then therefore coming out of that into what does it look like for God to tabernacle with His people and so forth. So again, that'll be what we get into more a year from now. So you'll have to wait on that part. But uh, but that's a good way to think about how the book breaks down uh, at a big picture level. Now, having said that, here's what I want to do. I want to bring us up to speed of kind of where we are in the current series. And, and dive in, dig deeper on uh, the last few chapters that we've been in. So if you, if you were to start reading the book of Exodus right now, you're going to open up with 
the story beginning after this 400-year gap from the end of Genesis to the beginning of of Exodus. You're going to leave Genesis seeing the death of Joseph, and then you're going to pick up 400 years later where all these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through Joseph being led to Egypt, all these descendants now are in Egypt, uh, but they're enslaved. They are not... um, they're no longer in the favor that Joseph was in. Uh, they are now enslaved because it's new kingship, new leaders, uh, different regime, and this multitude of people known as the the Israelites, the uh, the sons of Israel, Jacob, are now enslaved, and God is hearing their cry for mercy. He shows up, uh, de- begins this delivering process through this unlikely person, Moses. Um, unlikely in the sense that uh, uh, Moses was raised in the court of Pharaoh. Uh, it, at first in the story, you think, oh, this is clearly going to be the rescuer from the house of Pharaoh. But then through a series of events, uh, Moses, we find Moses in the wilderness of, of the Sinai Peninsula out in this place called Midian. And he's, he's kind of just content being on the hillside with his sheep living his life, and God shows up in a burning bush. He calls him to himself. Moses gives him all the reasons why he can't be the one. Uh, And God continues to affirm, and through his brother Aaron as his mouthpiece, sends them back to Egypt and uh, instructs them to tell this mighty leader of the known world, Pharaoh, the greatest kingdom on earth at the time, to let his people go to let God's people go. The great I am has said, Yahweh has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, well, who is God? And he mocks them and says, I'm not going to let your people go. In fact, I'm going to make their burdens even greater. And he pours out even more evil upon them. And so here's where I want us to pick up, guys. We get, we get to where, where we've been the last two weeks, where you get into these chapters and beginning in chapter um uh, chapter 7 and, uh, and then through 11, where you get the plagues. Uh, we've, ta- we've touched on this. Randy, two weeks ago, preached on um, these verses, on these chapters. Caleb, this week, you, you mentioned these as you led into the chapter 12 and the Passover story. But I'd love for us to, to spend a little time talking about the significance of the plagues um, and what God's up to. What, you know, what is it that he's doing in bringing these plagues? Certainly it's to deliver Egypt, but there's, there's a lot wrapped up in that. So Caleb, I know you've put a lot of thought into this as you've even prepared your sermon from this, from this past week. What's, uh, what are some things that you would say, hey, here's important things to know about what God's up to in these plagues? <clears throat> yeah, well, I think, I mean, the single most important thing that is happening here is uh, God is glorifying himself. He is making himself known, not just to Israel, but to Egypt. And I think this is something that we easily kind of overlook. We think of this as something where God is rescuing Israel from slavery. Um, But God repeatedly, through the course of the plagues, he keeps announcing that he's doing this, uh, that he would be exalted in the earth, that his name would be the one that's lifted up, that uh, he would be made known. So in like chapter eight, Moses says to Pharaoh, um, this is going to happen that you may know that there is no one like our God. Uh, God is revealing himself, not just to Israel, 
uh, but to Egypt. His intent is to be made known to them. And uh, you see, this is it has God has a missionary heart. He's he's always been about bringing in the nations, and you see that even in the uh, the follow up to the plagues. And I didn't get to get into this in my sermon, but uh, when Israel leaves uh, after the night of the the killing of the firstborn, when Israel is spared, and and Pharaoh finally pushes them out of the land, like with the same force he used to hold them into the land, now he is using it to send them out. Uh, it says that a mixed multitude left with them that uh, essentially it was not just ethnic Israel that walked out of that land. It was other people who watched God move and realized this, this is not only the God who rules and reigns over all things, but this is a God who cares and redeems and saves his people. And wherever he is going, we want to be with him. Um, and so you're, you're seeing God already, even here in Exodus uh, chapter 12, uh, he's bringing the nations to himself. Uh, which is exactly what you see in the New Testament in an even greater way with the bringing together of Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. And so I think those are that, that's a hugely significant theme um, that runs all through this. Uh, another one uh, before I guess would be that uh, it, you get a really good picture of what false repentance looks like with Pharaoh. Um, it, twice in this chapter or in these chapters, Pharaoh confesses sin. Uh, in, in chapter 10, at the very end in verse 16, or near the very end in verse 16, Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron and says, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. Like he's only done this one thing. He just needs this one little thing lifted from him. And plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. This is the locusts that have come into the land. Uh, so we went out from Pharaoh and Moses pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Uh, well, what's just happened? You, you see someone who he confesses his sin. He begs for the consequences of that sin to be lifted, but as soon as it's gone, he goes right back to what he was doing before. Um, and he does this. That was, I think that was the second time, the first time's in chapter 9 and verse 27, uh, but he does it twice. Um, he, he's a living, breathing picture of what it looks like to, uh, to have sin over the, grief over the consequences, yeah. but not grief over uh, the wound to God himself. Yeah, and there's a sense there too of, of uh, Pharaoh knows that he's losing grip of his kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What he's always had, this giving, this giving him the life that he's had, the power that he's had, the the glory that he's had, is slipping out from his hands. It reminds me of of, of King Saul, right? In in First Samuel fifteen, where uh, he was given specific instructions from the Lord, uh, and he didn't fully fulfill those instructions, those those commands, and uh, God takes issue with Saul and. Saul uh, goes through this this bit of, well, first he makes a lot of excuses, but eventually he says, I've sinned. But then he, the heart of why he sinned comes out, of why he admits his sin comes out when he says, uh, now restore me before the people, mm. right? He says, I've done wrong, but oh God, now restore me before the people. And you go, oh, okay, there it is. There's the heart of what appeared to be repentance was actually... Um, okay, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't do what you asked me to do. Uh, but what I really want is I want to be made much of again. And so would you do that now, right? And so there's some of that working on, uh, going on here with Pharaoh as well of, of uh, I'm losing everything that's precious to me and, and uh, okay, so I've sinned. So will you give it back? Um, 
there's there's another thing you mentioned in your sermon this past week, Caleb, and and uh, that I thought was was so significant too is even who Pharaoh represents, mm-hmm. uh, right in this story of that he is the representative of the kingdom of darkness, the one who opposes. God and that uh, uh, Pharaoh was the one that in, in um, almost said Greek mythology, but in Egyptian mythology, uh, was the most powerful, the one who could save you, the one who could rescue you. And and the Egyptians had all these concepts of the various gods that lorded over the land, and how in these plagues, what God is doing is certainly He's bringing judgment, right? But He's also showing He's the one true God. He's the one who is the sovereign, mm-hmm. not Pharaoh. Not these Egyptians, yeah. you know, Egyptian gods, so to speak, uh, but he, but he is, as he uh, time and time again shows that he's the uh, the sovereign over all creation. Um, Bob, let me ask you something. Why is it? Why is it important for for those who follow Christ, who who read their Bible, to be okay with? And this is a big task because we don't we live in a culture where we're not okay with this. We don't want to talk about judgment. But why is it so important that we have to understand that God is a God of judgment in order for us to really embrace at the level that we need to his mercy in in the gospel? Well, I really think uh Caleb, you did a great job on this this last Sunday uh in the sermon you preached about God's judgment and God's mercy. And I thought you just did a terrific job there talking about how intuitively we want justice to exist. And you gave examples of where people have suffered uh, at the hand of injustice, whether someone's been abused by an abuser or the list could go on and on, where our our intuition says there's got to be justice. This is wrong. And that tells us something intuitively about the importance of a, of a righteous universe, a universe where there is righteousness and justice. And uh, that's critical. I mean, if, if, if we were to have a decision between, I want a universe without justice or a universe with justice, I don't think any of us, if we're really forced to think through that we could get to choose— would want to say, I want to live in a universe there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as justice and injustice. It's all man-made. People just get to make it up. And if that's the case, then might makes right, as people have often put it. And that's a scary place to be. I mean, that's what leads to things like Nazi Germany, when might makes right. Uh, So we want there to be this thing called justice and, and rightness, the problem is we want that for other people, you know? <laughs> I want that for these awful people out there that do these awful things, and surely I'm not one of those awful people. Uh, I, I haven't done anything so awful. And so we tend to minimize our own sins and maximize the sins of other people, and we want justice for them but not for ourselves. Uh But once we understand the greatness of the gospel, and this is what Exodus is about. Exodus shows us the gospel. And there is a judgment here. I mean, frankly, for a long time, I grew up in church, grew up hearing these stories. I thought this is almost like God being the Godfather. He's just making these people an offer they can't refuse. You know, if you won't let these people go, I'll force you to make them go. I'll keep breaking fingers until you let them go, you know. (laughs) Uh, uh, And uh, I'll threaten your aunt or your grandmother or, you know, something until you let them go. But this really is judgment. And what, as Caleb pointed out in the sermon, 
uh, Sunday, uh, when the Passover happens, it's, it's obvious there's judgment on everybody. Everybody is under sin. And the only way anybody is delivered here is the blood of the lamb pl- applied to their doorposts. And, and so it's really hugely important uh, that we understand the truth of rightness and wrongness and judgment because there's no gospel, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness without that. Uh, we wouldn't, I wouldn't want uh, a, a universe of righteousness without mercy, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but there's no such thing as mercy if there's not righteousness. Yeah, yeah, and you, when you're in the story here, you're, you're, you're feeling as you read through the book of Exodus, these first 11 chapters, you're feeling as the reader, yes, the Egyptians are getting what they deserve. Judgment is being executed. Justice is being served. And then you get to chapter 11 and you realize, wait, hold on a second. Why is Israel all of a sudden brought into this to be the recipients of the same execution of judgment that, is, that the Egyptians are, that God would say all firstborn, including those in the house of Israel. And you start understanding, and this is where I, I want us to kind of go next, if, if you will, the storyline of the redemptive narrative of Scripture, right? Of that there is, there is this core understanding that we have to have um, that we're all under the judgment of God because of our sin. And that God is executing judgment, like you said, Bob, yes, on Egypt, but also on Israel. And that the only, the only shelter, the only way of refuge, of, of, uh, of rescue for Egyptian and Israel, Israelite alike, mm-hmm. for anyone made in the image of God is under the blood of the lamb. Um, and so you see that the gospel is, is in Exodus. It's so powerfully here in the book of Exodus. And it's so powerfully throughout the entire Old Testament, uh, which, which then segues us in some ways into uh, what I want us to discuss for a moment is, uh, how are we to read the Old Testament? How are we to read the Old Testament? How are we to read the New Testament? Uh, when we think about people who, so I'm thinking about the people who are listening right now and they think, okay, I don't have a seminary degree. Uh, I, I don't have the training that you guys have, whatever it may be. I just want to be able to read my Bible and have the, um, the this, this understanding that I can see some of these things. Uh, sometimes, sometimes church goers, followers of Christ, um, simply have a wrong framework sometimes of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Speak to that, whoever wants to. All right, Caleb and I are both pointing at each other. <laughs> We've been doing this the whole time. Like, who wants to go first? Uh, Not uh, it. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put, I'm, I'm wondering here how much to get into to terms. Uh, I may not do that right now, but uh, there's two different ways of looking at the Old Testament to the New and Israel to the church. And one is basically to say, God started something with Israel. It didn't quite work out. And so God started over with the church. And it's really two different things. There's Israel, and then there's the church. And even within that framework, there are those that would say, okay, and before Jesus comes back, God's going to gather Israel back together, 
and there's going to be Israel again enjoying the presence of God as a nation. And then Jesus will come back and it's like, here's the church, here's Israel as two different groups. Our understanding of the Bible says it's not two different groups as one. And uh, the, the, the way of understanding I just described, one uh, author put it this way, or one pastor, that as Christians, we're not participants in the Old Testament, we're just observers. Our understanding of the Bible is we're actually, observe, we're actually a participants. What Israel was in the Old Testament is what the church is in the New. And the, the greatest picture of this in the Bible, I think, there are two, but the one that's probably uh, maybe more people would recognize is in the book of Romans— Paul talks about that there's an olive tree, and he says there that the, those who are Israelites, those who are Jews, who believe in Jesus, are like natural branches of this olive tree that remain. And the Jews that are, do not believe in Jesus, those are branches that are broken off. And we as Gentiles who believe in Jesus are like wild olive branches that are grafted into the tree. Now, the point is, couple of things. First is, it's one tree, it's not two. <laughs> and that's the main thing. It's not that Israel was one tree and the church is the other. We're engrafted into Israel. And that means we have to be very humble as Gentiles. If you're a, if you're a Gentile follower of Jesus, like I am, you got to be really humble. We were engrafted into Israel, and we, we didn't really belong. Uh, and so it's one people of God, not two. And we need to be humble, we need to be grateful, we need to be thankful. And what that means here is this. The gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. That's where I'm going. The gospel is in the Old Testament. This is our story. It's not just that it's a now irrelevant story. God tried something with Israel. They didn't quite make it. He started over with the church. And there might be a few lessons here and there in the Old Testament that are for us, but it's really not our story. We would say this is very much our story. The gospel is all over the place in here. And as we're going to see before we get through with Exodus, there are some parts of the Old Testament Mosaic law that don't apply to us. There's the civil law that governed them as a nation. There's the ceremonial law that was fulfilled in the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. Those things are put aside, but everything else applies. <laughs> it, it belongs to us. And uh, I'm just very passionate about people seeing the importance of the Old Testament because it's our story and the gospel is here all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that the big the big text that I always go back to is Luke 24, where Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to teach them from all the scriptures that all of them speak about him. Um, and and you see, it seems it seems to me as you read through the New Testament, the gospel writers are taking that reality and going, "Oh my gosh, he's everywhere. This this whole story has always been about him." Um, and and one of my favorites when they think about the book of Exodus, you know, in the book of Jude. There's this line at the very beginning that you can just kind of pass over, but uh, I think it's pretty significant. It says in verse uh, verse five of the book of Jude, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, catch this, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now there's a whole big apologetic problem that we can talk about later, but I want to get the, the key piece. Who is saving God's people in Egypt? It's Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. Jesus is the one through whom God is doing the work of creation. Jesus is the one through whom God is doing, God the Father is doing the work of redemption, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And uh, it's it's everywhere. Um, yeah. You think about John 1, think about yeah. Colossians, yeah. Colossians 1, right? Who Who is... 
who's the one through whom he created? Yeah, Jesus. Right? It's Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, um, I grew up in a way where, at no fault of anyone, it, I think it's just kind of the nature of how many churches have operated over the years, where the Old Testament was treated more like a book that you went to to get great stories, moral moral stories that you apply um, in ways that aren't altogether bad by any means. You know, you look at someone like the life of David and the, the implication is be more like David uh, or Daniel, pray like Daniel, be strong and courageous like Daniel, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Um, it's sort of like Aesop's fable in the Old Testament. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, to an extent for sure. Uh, and are there ways in which God used that in my life? Absolutely. Um, but not understanding the redemptive narrative throughout, the gospel redemptive narrative throughout the, the, the Old Testament as it then is fully fulfilled and lived out in the beautiful teachings and, and, and stories of the New Testament as we get it all fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, it's it's kind of like before we went live here and started recording, uh, one of us said that uh, if, you, if you start your Christianity at Matthew, you have a pretty truncated understanding of Christianity. Uh, and so uh, we don't want to get our theology from the New Testament and our moral stories from the Old Testament. We want to get our theology from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. We want to get. We want to understand and see the work of God through Jesus, beginning in, gener- in Genesis, ending in Revelation, and really continuing now, uh, obviously in our lives day to day. Well, and I would even push it that you can't understand what's really happening fully in the New Testament unless you understand what God is mm-hmm. doing in the Old, because Amen. the Old it's it's preparing you for the for the work of Jesus. Um, to, to see it and understand it in its fullness. And so if you disconnect those two things, well, of course you end up with the truncated gospel because it's like reading half of a book. Like yeah. you don't know where it started and you don't know how all the setup and the foundation, uh, it, you're going to end up with a distorted understanding of what it means. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't save through it. I mean, I, sure. I'm, you, all you need is the gospel to be saved, right? right. We're not saying anything different than that. But you're not going to understand the fullness of it. Yeah, it's just not well, you're, possible. You're, you're going to ignore a lot. You're, you're just not going to read much in the Old Testament because you're going to go, well, I don't understand how why this matters. And the New Testament's a lot easier to read. I mean, we can admit that, right? So, uh, you know, I think I don't know Sally Lloyd Jones. She has not paid me to say this. I've never met her, but <laughs> in our home, if you're a parent listening and you have young children, the book that has been uh, critical for us. Uh, Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see as our children continue to get older. And But uh, at least to the best of our ability, by the grace of God, through Rachel and myself, we've really tried to help our children see the big storyline of of Jesus throughout the, the Bible in her book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, it just takes these familiar stories of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and helps you see the gospel thread throughout all of it. And so I've recommended it a lot. In fact, when I was on campus all those years ago, uh, I did crew ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ for 13 years. The last few years, I think I want to say her book came out 2012-ish, something like that. So the last three years that I was on campus, I would actually show up to discipleship appointments with that book, with these college uh, fraternity guys. And I'd say, hey, look, I know this embarrasses you. Um, but I, I, we're going to open this up and you're going to be able to see and comprehend by the time we finish this book, uh, the 
the fundamental basic elements of how God is weaving the same story, beginning with Israel, blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, and you'll have an understanding of the Bible from beginning to end better than most adults. And uh, so if you're an adult, I would say, grab that book. If you've never been able to fully put together in your mind, how do we see the gospel in the book of Exodus, for example? Grab that book and read it. It'll help you tremendously. I'll give another story about that. I know of a, a young lady, when she was a freshman in college, she was participant in children's ministry. She was using that book. And so she had it in her dorm room with a roommate who was not a Christian, but had grown up around church. She asked about the book and the believers read her some of the stories. And then what happened was every night, the unbelieving girl would ask the believer, read me the next story, because she was so fascinated to hear the stories of the Bible and how they related to Jesus. And it became meaningful to her for the first time ever, just hearing what the gospel was all about. And, and I'll have to say, for so many years in reading the Old Testament, uh, I wasn't aware of all the people that were uh, forerunners of Jesus, so to speak. And, you know, Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater Joseph. He's the greater David. You know, uh, the list goes on and on. He's the greater Ark of Noah, you know, and that's who Jesus is. And over and over again, I would just identify myself with, you know, the the hero of the story and think, well, what can I learn here about, you know, how God treated this person? And there's some value in that, you know. There is value in that, but it's not the main part of the story. Yeah. And we miss the main thing that's being revealed uh, if we miss this gospel-centered approach. Right. And and sometimes I have to force myself to say, okay, what can I learn from this passage? But what was in the mind of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit inspired this story? And and for the book of Exodus, this is showing us Jesus, it's showing our, our redemption, it's showing who we are as people who have been saved and are being saved, and it's just a powerful book. Mm. So here we are. At this point in the series, as we record this, um, we've just finished preaching through Exodus chapter 12. So here we are in the Passover. If there's ever an Old Testament passage that screams <laughs> just at the top of, of our lungs, screams Jesus, it's it's Exodus chapter 12. It's the... It's the setting up of God's um, uh, beautiful picture that, uh, that it's only through the blood of the Lamb through which His people go free. Um, and, uh, and, of course, we now, being on this side of the cross, are able to, to look back uh, to see Jesus on that night that He was betrayed, that Thursday night before He went to the cross on Friday, take that very same Passover meal that God's people had been partaking in generation after generation after generation, living out the instructions of Exodus 13 and beyond, and taking that meal every year at Passover and dining on the lamb, and, and then to, for Jesus to stand up and to say, this has all been pointing to me. This is a new covenant in my blood. In other words, I am the lamb, my body broken for you my blood spilled for you, and to say, in essence, now you dine on me. By faith in me, the true Lamb of God, 
Um, it's one of the easier texts in the Old Testament to say, oh, this is about Jesus. This is a foreshadowing to what he will accomplish. But it's just one of many throughout the Old Testament. So our encouragement to you as we sign off on this one is, uh, as you think of a big takeaway from this episode, it would be that the gospel is all throughout the book of Exodus. The great news of there being a redeemer, one who saves, one whose blood shed over the doorpost, spread over the doorpost of my heart, so to speak, is the one who sets me free. And so would you, uh, would you relish in that truth uh, even now, wherever you are, if you're listening as you drive or as you're doing whatever you're doing around the house, would you pause and would you praise God for the blood of Jesus, uh, that he is our lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're grateful for you. We're glad that you've joined us. We're excited that you've tuned in with us. So be sure to check out our other podcast uh, from Perimeter Church. Thinking Biblically is another one that we do from time to time. Uh, would love for you to tune into that one. And for next, uh, for the next Digging Deeper podcast, here's what I'd love for you to do as you listen. I'd love for you to send in questions that you may have. We want to do a Q&A at the end of, the, of, uh, of our time together for the, for the end of the Exodus Digging Deeper podcast. So send that to diggingdeeper at perimeter.org and uh, Caleb and Bob and I would love to take probably two or three of those questions, maybe more, depending on how much time we take there, uh, depending on how many questions come in. But we would love to address your questions and, um, and, and do that in the next podcast. So send those to diggingdeeper at perimeter.org. Uh, lastly, head over to perimeter.org uh, slash podcast. You'll find there show notes on each episode, resources that we've mentioned. So even the Jesus Storybook Bible will be highlighted there. Uh, key takeaways and questions. All of that is at perimeter.org slash forward slash podcast. So we're grateful for you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.